Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today we're talking about nuclear power reactors. How small can we make them? Are small nuclear plants safer? Are they cost-effective? And after the interview, Shreya Dervasala has another example of the Trump administration sidelining science. When we talk about our country's transition to a clean energy economy, we tend to speak in terms of renewable energy, like wind and solar power, pitted against non-renewable fossil fuels, like natural gas, coal, and oil. That's because there's an undeniable momentum for renewable energy from coast to coast. But there's another sector of energy production, of course, and that's nuclear power. To me, nuclear energy is sort of like your weird, intense cousin who comes to family parties once a year and doesn't talk to anyone. Even though nuclear-generated power is responsible for about 20% of the energy produced in the U.S. each year, it's not often at the top of mind until an accident like Fukushima happens. One of the reasons we forget about nuclear power is that it's becoming less competitive these days with prices dropping for natural gas and for renewable energy. This has resulted in a lot of nuclear plants closing and a lot of power being taken offline. Five American nuclear power plants have closed in the last five years, and five more are slated for retirement in the next 10 years. The Trump administration has proposed artificially propping up certain plants to keep them competitive. But is that really a sensible option? What does the nuclear power plant of the future look like? Should we invest in smaller nuclear reactors? Should our clean energy economy factor in nuclear power at all? To get answers, I sat down with my colleague, Dr. Edwin Lyman, senior scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Ed is an internationally recognized expert on nuclear power safety and security, and on nuclear proliferation and terrorism. We chatted about the potential drawbacks of new nuclear technology called small modular reactors, why the nuclear industry needs to be well regulated, and why you really don't want to go swimming in a spent fuel pool. Hi, Ed. Thanks for joining me on the Got Science podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. So I want to talk about nuclear power reactors and specifically the proposed small modular reactor that I believe is referred to as the SMR. Can you start off by telling us what they are? Sure. Uh, Small modular reactors are characterized in two ways. One, the fact that they're smaller than the conventional nuclear reactors that are uh, being used today. So if a conventional reactor is typically generates about 1,000 or 1,100 megawatts of electricity, the small reactors typically would be 300 megawatts or less, so about a third or less of the size of a conventional reactor. So just to give our listeners, it, would that be like a, a 12 by 12 cube, or you know, does that matter? what the physical size of it is. Yeah, the physical size is not completely correlated with the uh, amount of uh, electricity it generates, uh, so it's hard to be uh, give a general response to that, but typically that they could be smaller or even much smaller. But the the footprint of a, of a nuclear reactor isn't really um, determined by the nuclear fuel in the core, which is what uh, will really determine the power 
that's capable of being generated, but more by the other aspects of the plant, like uh, a containment building, which is meant to prevent the release of radioactivity in the event of a core melt accident, and the other uh, auxiliary buildings. So there's a lot of leeway for addressing the uh, reactor footprint that's not completely correlated with the size. And the idea is they're just... I mean, they're smaller in that they can be manufactured more easily. Yeah, so the, the other part of SMR is the M, which is modular. And the philosophy is instead of building one massive reactor to generate baseload power, which is inflexible um, and can't uh, follow demand very easily, and uh, in these days, uh, utilities want more flexibility. They don't want to buy huge chunks of power um, and nuclear reactors can't be turned on and off uh, very easily. So you're kind of stuck with this large amount of baseload power as long as they're operating. The idea would be to have uh, smaller reactors that you could add incrementally uh, so that there's the modular aspect uh, that you would essentially uh, snap them together like Legos. Uh, not exactly, <laughs> but that, that's the idea uh, conceptually. And they could be conceivably manufactured in a factory on an assembly line where they would be standardized. The, these factories would crank out hundreds or thousands of units a year in, in the dreams of some of the uh, vendors. And, um, and they could achieve uh, more efficiency and economy by standardizing the manufacturer. That's the theory. So talk um, a little bit about then the, the economics of that because it doesn't really work when you lay it all out. Yes, the, the challenge that nuclear power is facing today in the United States uh, is economics and the fact that the price of fossil fuels and natural gas has decreased uh, dramatically uh, when the uh, price of generating nuclear power hasn't. And so nuclear power is having a harder and harder time competing. And that's the existing operating plants that have, uh, in most cases, already paid off all their debt. So they're really just running at um, the cost it takes to operate. The, the main thing to realize about a smaller reactor is that generally it'll produce more expensive electricity than a larger reactor. And that's because of the economies of scale principle. Over uh, the history of nuclear reactor development, uh, they started off fairly small, but they grew larger over time. And the reason for that is because building a larger reactor uh, generally will produce less expensive electricity than the smaller reactor because of the economies of scale principle. So if you go back the, in reverse and you shrink them, then you're dealing with the potential cost premium compared to large reactors. And so since the large reactors are not competitive today, these small reactors may be even, even worse on a uh, you know, per unit of electricity generated. So that's, that's the challenge that these reactors are facing. Where would these small modular reactors be sited? Will they be handled in the same way as large power plants, or will they be dispersed in a wider range? I think that all uh, the potential options are, are being discussed. Uh, you could have 
a number of small units all operating together in uh, one site. So essentially, in, uh, instead of building one large plant, you'd build, um, as, I, as I said before, you'd supply smaller units, perhaps they'd be added as needed. Um, so you would just be replacing a large reactor with many small reactors. But um, some of the vendors are also looking at the possibility of dispersing or distributing these units more widely. So for instance, at sites where there are coal plants that are uh, shut down or maybe shut down soon, perhaps you could replace that coal plant with a small modular reactor. Uh, and then at the extreme, some of the designs being contemplated are very small, maybe uh, 10 megawatts of electricity. They might be used to provide small amounts of electricity to remote areas, to military bases, uh, places where there isn't a grid that can handle a large amount of electricity. So, so there are uh, a lot of dreams about how these would be deployed. So, and each of those would need all of the all of the safety containment, so it, it seems like that would be even less economically feasible. There are a lot of unanswered questions about how these designs would be regulated, and, and until those questions are answered, it's really hard to make any judgments about whether these plants will be safer. The um, vendors who are uh, hope to sell small modular reactors generally make the claim that these reactors, uh, first of all, they're going to be smaller, so each unit will have a smaller amount of radioactivity that could be released in the event of a severe accident. And um, second, they argue that they're going to have inherent safety features which will make them uh, less risky, so the possibility of having an accident in the first place that would lead to fuel damage is smaller. So putting those all together, they claim reactor is going to be so much safer that they don't need a lot of the safety and security features of the current fleet. And that's when it gets complicated because if you say a priori the reactor is going to be safer so therefore we don't need extra safety features until you figure it out the sum total of all the uh, changes you're going to make you don't know if they're going to be safer than the current generation. Do you have an example of um a particular feature that they're talking about that you think may work or wouldn't work? One of the um, big concerns, um, so the, because small module reactors are a priori more expensive, the vendors are looking to make all sorts of design compromises uh, to cut corners to reduce the uh, capital cost and operating cost even further. And there are a lot of ways where you can cut corners. One is in the size of the containment building that nuclear reactors are required to have uh, to protect the environment in the case of an accident like Fukushima where uh, the core melted and radioactivity was released. Fukushima could have been a lot worse if those reactors didn't have some sort of containment. So, uh, but the containments that those reactors had were not adequate to prevent any radiological release, and that's why there's a still large area 
in Japan, which is uh, off limits to human habitation. But the uh, containments generally are expensive. They're large steel reinforced concrete buildings. They're often a large fraction of the capital cost of, of the plant. So it's a place where SMR vendors would love to cut. And of course, um, if you built the same large containment over each small reactor, uh, then it clearly wouldn't make sense to replace one large reactor with multiple small ones. So it almost doesn't make sense uh, to do that. But the question is, is it really going to be safe enough to compromise on the containment? There's another uh, important aspect, which is the quality assurance that goes into manufacture of nuclear components. Generally, nuclear power plants, because of the potential risk of, a, of an accident, uh, have to be manufactured to very high quality assurance standards. That is, you make sure that the materials are very high quality, that um, they're consistent, that they're constructed with uh, very uh, rigorous standards. And um, that is also something that adds to the cost of nuclear plants because it slows things down. Uh, it limits the number of suppliers that um, can supply these materials. It requires a lot of paperwork. So the vendors would love to cut uh, the use of what's called you know, nuclear safety grade equipment and construction. And again, they argue that because the reactor is going to be safer, they don't need to meet those very critical standards. And that's something that uh, we worry about a lot because when you start saying we don't need um, uh, to build a nuclear reactor with the highest safety standards, uh, we think that that is um, jumping the gun because no one's demonstrated yet these reactors are actually going to be safer. We'll be back in a moment with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. Got Science is made possible by the 120,000 members of UCS and especially the 12,000 Partners for the Earth who make monthly gifts to stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Now back to our interview. So there, there's another piece of this that I want to pivot to, and that's the, um, the spent fuel. I mean, we know we, we have this issue. Spent fuel pools are currently in the same location as reactors because we don't have any dry cask storage, we, and they're being overloaded. Um, tell me a little bit about that and if the small nuclear reactors are going to be handled the same way and put in pools that are right in the same area. You raise a very important point, and spent fuel storage is something that um, UCS is very worried about um, because, as you point out, um, the spent fuel pools for uh, current generation reactors were not designed to be large enough to handle all the waste generated over the lifetimes of those reactors. And as a result of the fuel which is stored in swimming pools, after it's discharged, um, is accumulating in those pools, is uh, piling up, and utilities generally have to build what's called dry cask storage to move some of the older fuel out of those pools. 
but it's still the, uh, an economic incentive for them to keep the pools as full as possible so they don't have to buy as many dry casks and those overcrowded pools are a, are a real safety threat. Now when you talk about a small modular reactor, well each reactor uh, may be smaller than a large reactor so there's less radioactivity in the reactor when it's operating but there's still no place to uh, move the spent fuel uh, away from the site because the U.S. doesn't have a geologic repository uh, site for disposing of that material. So it would still have to accumulate at the site. And so even if you have a, a reactor that's one-third the size of a large reactor, over 40 years it's going to accumulate a whole lot of radioactive waste that will have to be stored on site. So the risks of that accumulation have to be considered and then the advantage of having a small reactor doesn't seem uh, so great because of that large amount of radioactive material it's building up on the site. This is an issue that the SMR vendors just don't like to talk about. What are the potential things that could happen? Does the spent fuel, can it, does it catch on fire? What are the dangers? One of the biggest risks of um, spent fuel storage in a pool is that if there were an earthquake or a terrorist attack, uh, that breached the liner of the pool, allowing the cooling water to drain out. Um, the spent fuel remains hot for many years after it's discharged from the reactor. So you need to provide cooling to keep the fuel from uh, damaging itself. But if that cooling water would be lost, it's been shown that the fuel can heat up fairly rapidly to the point where it could actually catch fire. That's because uh, nuclear fuel uh, is typically coated with a metal called zirconium. Um, uh, uh, the fuel rods that contain the uranium fuel are made out of a zirconium alloy. Zirconium is a very good material in a nuclear reactor, but it's not such a good material in a spent fuel pool because if it overheats, it can ignite. And it's been shown that that type of event could lead to a widespread fire in the spent fuel pool and a massive release of radioactive material that could contaminate hundreds of miles downwind. So that's something uh, that must be prevented, nuclear plants. At the SMRs, uh, they will have typically spent fuel pools, just like the larger reactors. Um, and so that is going to be a concern but until the details of their spent fuel storage are, uh, are really developed, it's going to be hard to say what the risk is. Do we need to worry about terrorist attacks? I think we do, but could you tell me what type of terrorist attack there might be? And can they get materials that, where they could make a bomb? There are generally two types of terrorist attacks that we worry about. One is a sabotage attack where terrorists uh, access a nuclear reactor or a spent fuel pool and destroy enough equipment so that the fuel in the reactor of the spent fuel pool overheats to the extent that it melts down. So essentially you have a terrorist-induced event like Fukushima. That's a very real threat. That's a threat we face today and that's why nuclear power plants have um, armed security officers that are uh, trained to respond to uh, a terrorist attack. 
these days we also have to worry about cyber attacks which um, by themselves um, probably couldn't uh, lead to fuel damage at a current nuclear reactor mostly because current nuclear reactors still have analog uh, controls uh, but for advanced reactors that are going to be designed with more uh, digital instrumentation control systems they could be more vulnerable so this is an ever-present threat um, the other potential terrorist act is if a nuclear reactor has um, a fuel cycle that involves nuclear weapon usable materials now in the current fleet in the US and most other countries around the world nuclear reactors use what's called low enriched uranium fuel this fuel can't be used uh, directly to make a nuclear weapon so if terrorists were to steal it they would need to process and then enrich that material with an enrichment plant uh, to make highly enriched uranium for nuclear weapons that's a tall order for a terrorist but some reactor designs actually would use fresh fuel that's nuclear weapons usable for instance plutonium and in that case those plants are much more vulnerable because terrorists could steal the fresh fuel before it even goes into the reactor and make a bomb with that so uh, depending on the type of reactor you're talking about uh, that determines the type of threat it poses so uh, another nuclear materials 101 question plutonium it's so like how would an how would a terrorist actually physically get it well that's that's one of the scary things about um, plutonium is it only takes a relatively small amount uh, to make a nuclear weapon maybe uh, around 11 pounds uh, so it's not impossible for someone to carry it on their person and it's very dense so that 11 pound mass is only about the size of a grape small grapefruit and and the other aspect is that even though plutonium is a radioactive element it doesn't um, depending on the isotope but um, most plutonium isotopes don't generate a high level of radioactivity which can penetrate the skin so if you can hold plutonium in your hand um, it might over time you know damage the surface of your skin but it doesn't generate penetrating radiation that that destroys the uh, tissues and organs within your body so you actually can carry it um, so it is feasible if there's concentrated plutonium around uh, that someone could take enough for a nuclear weapon uh, on their person and that's why it has to be protected so vigorously what do you think the odds are that small modular reactors will actually come into use and that we will actually build them and use them well the the odds that SMRs small modular reactors will be deployed at this point really depends on how much governments are willing to spend to subsidize the construction of the first units as well as the manufacturing plants that would be designed to produce the modules I think there's general acknowledgement 
that at least the first uh, of a kind, maybe the first few dozen of any given small modular reactor design are not going to be economical uh, without subsidy. So Ed, you testify before Congress um, about these safety and science issues that that Congress really needs to know about. Part of the reason why we testify is we're trying to prevent Congress from directing the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to weaken its licensing standards for small modular reactors or other advanced reactors. Um, because some uh, in Congress are very receptive to the idea that nuclear power is overregulated and somehow the regulations are what's killing the industry. We don't believe that's true. Uh, we think the industry has a lot of problems independent of the regulations that it needs to meet to be adequately safe and secure, and those regulations actually help the industry by protecting it from itself and its worst impulses uh, to cut corners and uh, threaten its own uh, safety. Um, so we don't, we don't see the regulations as the problem, but still uh, there is this view that um, we need to make it easier to license these reactors and some of the safety standards for larger reactors, for instance, the need for a 10-mile emergency evacuation zone around a nuclear power plant or the need for a robust security force to prevent a terrorist attack uh, some people say that those are, aren't needed for small reactors because the reactors will be safer, so you're never going to have to evacuate the public. Uh, and even if terrorists tried to attack the plant, uh, nothing bad would happen. So why do we need evacuation zones or security? Uh, we don't believe the analysis supports that. Um, right now, it's just a, a lot of hot air. Um, uh, maybe over time, if these reactors are deployed, demonstrated, and their safety features are validated through operating experience, one might be able to conclude at that point maybe certain regulations should be loosened, but certainly not when these are still uh, on paper and just a gleam in some developer's eye. It would be very irresponsible to make safety decisions based on uh, that kind of uh, uh, speculation. Thanks for taking some time out of your day to, to chat with me. Oh, it's, it's been a pleasure. It's time for a short segment we call Sidelining Science, the latest shady news from an administration that is trying to redefine the role of the Environmental Protection Agency. Our Shreya Durvasula has the story. Americans tend to enjoy clean air and water, and they are also generally in favor of the rules that the EPA has implemented to protect these things that keep us all alive. This means that attempting to mess with these rules gets people upset, which must be a total bummer for the former industry shells appointed by President Trump to run the EPA, especially those who seem to prefer dismantling environmental and public health protections over enforcing them. But what if there was a back door to dismantling these rules that wouldn't get people upset because it's disguised as something positive? Something like, say, pretending that they care about transparency in scientific research. That might work. And that's exactly what EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, in tandem with his colleagues in Congress, is trying to do. 
Pruitt has announced that the EPA plans to require that data and methodology from studies used to craft regulations be made public. And as a corollary, no regulation can be set or enforced if the information behind it isn't public. Well, that sounds good on its face, right? Who doesn't want more transparency? But here's the thing. In many cases, sensitive data about people's health contained within the studies that the EPA relies on is private because of our right to privacy regarding confidential medical information. And in other cases, these studies are private because there are massive accumulations of data assembled for one purpose and there's no market to publish them. To insist that all studies used to create EPA protections be public is a disingenuous political trick. And it will actually limit the EPA from being able to make rules to protect our public health and safety, which is the point of the plan and what Pruitt is hoping to accomplish. Well, how do we know it's a political trick? Because this plan, specifically about the role of science, was not set into motion by actual scientists, but by politicians. And we know that because UCS submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to the EPA to release their emails relating to this plan. The emails we received showed that Republican legislators in the House of Representatives reached out to coordinate with folks in the EPA to set this plan into motion. No actual scientists call for this measure. In fact, nearly a thousand scientists, including former EPA scientists, signed on to a letter opposing the plan. Administrator Pruitt may try to disguise this unpopular plan by claiming he supports transparency. But we know he's just sidelining science. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Special thanks to Dr. Edwin Lyman. Sidelining Science was brought to you by Shreya Dervasala. Editing by Omari Spears. Music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks, and see you next time.